Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. No matter which side of, of the V you're on, just understand that social media is admissible. It's uh, something that's going to be used to down the road. If you're an employee, don't badmouth your employer on social media. If you're an employer, don't badmouth your people on social media. It seems like that should go without saying, but some people think for some reason social media is just a different world and it doesn't count. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Hello. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of hosting Alan Crone an authority in employment law who will guide us through three pivotal aspects of running a successful business. We'll first discuss actionable steps to safeguard your intellectual property. These are items as as a business owner, an entrepreneur, you create and you now wanna protect so other people can't copy or uh, steal your creations. Next, we'll explore ways to cultivate a harmonious and productive workplace. Alan has some unique insight on this and what he shares, I, I believe, is very valuable. And lastly, we'll discuss the vital role of authentic relationships in achieving success. This is another little great bit that Alan shares that I think we can take a lot away from. So let's get ready for some practical tips, some great advice. Let's get started. Hi, Alan. Thanks for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being on. Hey, I'd love to start out with learning a little bit about you. Can you tell us what you do and then just a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, my name is Alan. I'm a lawyer and a uh, recovering politician. I live in Memphis, Tennessee. I have a, a law firm, the Crone Law Firm, which is an uh, employment uh, law firm. We represent employees, executives, and entrepreneurs, and in legal uh, matters that affect their ability to make uh, money. And so uh, we represent people. Sometimes those people have businesses, and that's where the entrepreneur comes in. Very cool. What do you see when it comes to employment law, and particularly smaller businesses, let's say under $10 million in revenue? Do you see any type of pattern? What are things that come up typically? Well, when you're talking about a business of that size, yeah, unless they're in a particularly litigious area uh, where maybe they have a union or for whatever reason, they've just got people kind of coming in and out. Those businesses, in my experience, tend to be fairly stable. And the biggest problem I see is that business owners at that stage kind of put human resources and personnel issues kind of off to the side and don't really think about it. Uh, you know, if they've got 25 or 30 employees, they think, well, we're not really large enough to worry about employment law. And then they may have a one-off situation that causes them a lot of problems, a a wrongful termination or maybe a wage and hour uh, issue. And a lot of that can be avoided by being a little proactive with your uh, HR compliance. Got it. Now, 
One thing I see periodically, even with small businesses, is like when it comes to overtime, doing it correctly or treating people, whether they should be salary overtime. Any thoughts around like, like, because small business owners, they're overwhelmed. They just like, to your point, they don't have HR. Any like best business practices or something they can do to reduce those types of errors or how, how do you deal with it? Sure. I think probably one of the most prevalent misclassifications out there are independent contractors versus uh, W-2 employees. And it's my personal benefit, having been on both sides of those kinds of cases, that most people who are walking around calling themselves independent contractors are really employees. And the long story short there is they've got to be independent and they've got to be contractors. If you've got a, you've got someone working with you who works 40 or hours or more a week for you, they don't work for anybody else, they come to your place, they do what you tell them, nine times out of 10, maybe even 99 times out of 100, that person's an employee. And if you're calling them an independent contractor, you leave yourself open for a lot of hurt. And the way most of the time that those issues are raised is not while they're working there, but if they they you can fire them or they get mad and quit and they go see a lawyer about, well, I was fired. And the lawyer may say, well, you know, you don't have a wrongful termination claim, but how are you paid? And they get into it and they realize, oh, this person and the five other people or 10 other people or 100 other people that are in that job classification are likely misclassified. And then, you know, you you can have problems with, with the plaintiff's lawyer, but you can also have problems with the Department of Labor, Affordability Health Care Act, and some other places and the IRS uh, who now come wanting their 7.25% of uh, employment tax and everything else. So, it's one of those things that that can save you money in the short term, but if you ever get caught, it it can be very just devastating for a small employer. Yeah. You know, in California, one of those triggers too, you just made me think, a lot of times when it may or may not be a disgruntled case, but contractor winds up their project or winds up their assignment and they run down to the employment development department here and file an unemployment claim. And uh, it's very interesting because the state usually will go, okay, no problem. We'll give you unemployment even though you were at 1099. But then they head over to the employer and do a full-blown audit of, of the, all their independent contractors. So that's a trigger that, you know, it's after the fact. A lot of times clients don't even think about that until, you know, unfortunately the claim's filed. That's a really good point doesn't happen as much in Tennessee and states like that, red states like Tennessee, because the department isn't looking. They're looking, people come in, they're looking to reject people. And so they don't really get that far. But a lot of states like Illinois and, and California, you're absolutely right, will, um, you know, they'll keep going. And when I first started doing this 30 years ago, the federal agencies and the state agencies that were in this field really didn't talk to one another. You know, if you got in trouble with the Department of Labor, they weren't going to call up the IRS and say, hey, I've got this person with misclassified workers. You would deal with the Department of Labor and you'd, you'd move on. And there are all kinds of other uh, permutations of that, right? But since uh, 2010, I guess, whenever the Affordable Care Act went into effect, those federal agencies are starting to talk to one another and uh, they have reciprocal agreements so that if one spots you, then they let everybody else know. And it's basically because of that uh, minimum amount, the 50 minimum employees that uh, the Affordable Care Act kind of kicks in. And those departments 
once they started doing that for the IRS, they realized how beneficial it was all the way around. So now that's kind of that's kind of entrenched. A Democratic administration is going to be more aggressive with that than Republican administrations. But even uh, the Republican administrations are always looking for cash. So, you know, it sounds like a small thing, but, you know, if you've got more than one worker who is engaging in in work and misclassified, it can be exponentially uh, expensive because you're going to have to pay your own lawyer. And if you're if you're liable, you're also going to have to pay the other side's lawyer. And whereas in most employment matters, you know, employment statutes, they'll look at, well, okay. How much did the plaintiff get? And they only got 10000 and it took 100000 in legal fees to get there. We'll shave that down. But under the Fair Labor Standards Act, it's written into the act that it's a remedial statute and uh, the tie goes to the runner, in this case, the, the employee. And if you've got a $3,000 claim, I've seen $30,000, dollars $70,000 attorney's fees from the plaintiff side because the uh, employer, you know, kind of led with his chin and said, you know, I'd rather pay you, lawyer, than pay them. At the end of the day, you end up paying your lawyer, the claimant, and the claimant's lawyer. So it's it's not something to play around with. Wow, that can really add up. Hey, and you have a great book, The Law at Work. I have a couple questions for you. Who would you say that book is for? Is that for uh, small businesses? Who, who does it target? Yeah, it really is for any decision maker who've got people working for them. It also is is good for employees and executives because I I tried to to write it in such a way that was very approachable. You don't have to be a lawyer to read it. In fact, if it was written for lawyers, it probably five times the size because you know you've really got to explain things to lawyers. But I try to make it very approachable. There are lots of stories in it that illustrate the various points, and it just explains the legal system in America as it relates to most employment issues. We've got a chapter on wage and hour and overtime. We've got a chapter on non-competes, wrongful terminations, discrimination, harassment, and that sort of thing. And so uh, you can read it cover to cover, or you can use it as a reference book. If you've got a particular employment situation, you can read it and it's not going to solve all your problems or answer all your questions, but it'll it'll kind of cover that the basic stuff so that you you know what you're doing with and you can make informed decisions going forward. Speaking of non-competes, what's your thought on non-competes? There's some school of thought that I believe it's Congress or I don't know who is talking about or creating some rules that potentially could make non-competes obsolete. What are your thoughts on those in terms of uh, having non-competes in contracts and then maybe even if they're enforceable? Well, I guess it really depends on which side of the V you're sitting on. (laughs) If you're a business owner, you know, you've got a legitimate interest in protecting your trade secrets, protecting the investments that you make in certain workers. I think that there was an old uh, adage in law school, hogs get fat, pigs get slaughtered. And, you know, business has used these these agreements to to really try to take advantage of people kind of down the organizational chart. The one that the FTC, which is who you're thinking of. FTC, you're right. Thank you. You know, there are non-competes out there for folks who work in uh, sandwich shops, you know, and, you know, someone putting a sandwich together uh, is saying that they can't go work for another member of that, fran- you know, franchise outfit or even another a competing company. That that seems a little far-fetched to me because are you really, is there really a, 
a business interest that you're protecting. But I think, you know, salespeople who become the, the face of the, the agency or high executives who have access to all kinds of, of strategic and tactical uh, information on a case-by-case basis, I think those uh, are enforceable. Now, I'll tell you a little secret. The enforceability of these agreements is not nearly as valuable as the threat of the enforceability. Most of them, as they're written, are unenforceable. And it depends on what state you're in. In, in, in Tennessee, for example, we have what they call the blue pencil rule, which means the judge can take the agreement and kind of rewrite it and make it reasonable. There are some states where if it's unreasonable in a little bit, the whole thing gets thrown out. But the word, I always say one of the worst curses I can give you, Tyler, is may you have a good defense to a lawsuit because having a good defense to a lawsuit is, is expensive, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, it's one thing, I always say, it's one thing to be guilty and try to make a deal to get out. It's another thing to know you're right and then be looking down the barrel of a five-figure or even six-figure legal bill to, to prove that you're right. And that happens a lot of times in, in uh, non-compete cases where the, you know, I see frequently someone will come to me and say, yeah, I have this non-compete, what do you think? And I say, well, I don't think it's enforceable. But that doesn't mean anybody's going to hire you because they don't want to hire a lawsuit or they may hire you. And then when the cease and desist letter comes, you're going to be on your own to you may be on your own to defend it. And then you're out of pocket, 10, 20, 30,000 dollars, depending upon how uh, serious the other side is. Uh, we've had a lot of success in in fighting those things, but uh, it it can come down sometimes to who has the deeper pockets. And I think that's one reason why. The Congress, the Congress looked at it a number of times, the FTC, the NLRB in under the Biden administration has looked to undermine these agreements because they're often overreaching and the people who are subject to them don't have the resources to to fight it. Yeah, it's still a very powerful tool. People ask me all the time, are they enforceable? And I always say they may not be enforceable, but they're very effective and on the other hand, when people say, I, I want to get out of it, I say, you know, that's probably not as hard as you think. Let's let's think through a creative way to get you where you want to go. Yeah, I had to learn that the hard way. I had a, a staff member I'd hired and uh, we got sued by a company that said he was breaking the non-compete and we were fine. I mean, we had 100% no issue, no chance they were going to win it. But I ended up writing him a check for $5,000. And I also gave the law firm that represented us, I think it was about $30,000. Just It was really just a nuisance lawsuit. It was really, I think, kind of just tactics to kind of intimidate us. And frankly, it worked because next time I ran into someone that was working there, I said, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't, I don't, can't waste the time or I don't really want to deal with the money loss. So um, it is, I guess they do, you know, especially in California, it can be used as a tool, even though they're not going to win. That's not really the point. It's more almost like a nuisance type thing, I, I think. I would say it's not a it's not a, a brick wall, but it is a, a big speed bump or a speed table. You've got to slow down and negotiate it. And, um, you know, sometimes that's enough to say, well, I'm going to hire the person who doesn't have a non-compete. They're both equally good. I'm going to go that direction or, uh, you know, some other tactic. But if you want to get around them, you can. And if you're looking, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to protect certain uh, processes or, you know, keep a, a, a valued employee from going somewhere else, my advice there is yeah. to get a custom drafted non-compete. If you get something off the internet, it may or may not work, 
But if you've drafted something pretty tight that's clearly customized to this particular situation and this particular business interest that you're trying to protect, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot more credible and a lot more enforceable than if it just says, "Okay, they're they're out of the whole industry uh, within a hundred miles of this location for two years." That's probably going to you're going to have a lot of problems enforcing that. But if you recite what the business interests are and you recite you know, we're going to keep out of this particular industry with these particular kinds of of uh, product lines. You've got a much better chance of of um, making that work. Very cool, very cool. Hey, I wanted to switch gears. I want to talk a little bit about intellectual property. When you're talking small businesses, once again, maybe you know, under twenty million, under ten million in revenue. Where does that fit in for a small business? Is that something they should be thinking about? Is that what, what's your thoughts on that, or is it something just for big companies? Absolutely. I think it's for everybody. In 2023, what sets you apart? It's your intellectual property. It's your whatever systems you have to scale, that's intellectual property. Who your vendors are could be intellectual property. Whatever gives you a competitive advantage, that's where you want to use these agreements, non-disclosure agreements, non-compete agreements, non-solicitation agreements to protect those relationships to protect those systems and processes that you've invested countless hours and probably a lot of money in. And I think you really want to start thinking about that when it is just you, you know, and really thinking through, okay, what makes my business special and protecting it? And then developing a culture of that. We talk about it in the book that there are uh, innumerable situations where people have these elaborate you know, confidential information or proprietary information that they've assembled and they put some protections on it and then time passes and they forget about it. Nobody in the business knows that it's confidential. You know, it's just kind of taken uh, for granted. So it's something that you, it's not something you can just check off your list and say, oh, I've got this NDA. I don't have to worry about it. It's something you need to look at all the time. And if it really is something that, uh, sets you apart from your competition, you want to make sure that you're uh, protecting it. And it's not just, you know, the formula for your buffalo cheese dip at, uh, you know, at your restaurant. Uh, that certainly is a is a trade secret, but it, it, it could be a lot of different things that you're not really thinking about that sets you apart, everything from your customer list to how you pack your boxes or whatever it is that, that uh, gives you that competitive advantage. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. It could be a lot of different things that you're not really thinking about that sets you apart, everything from your customer list to how you pack your boxes or whatever it is that that uh, gives you that competitive advantage. Okay. I wanted to talk about best practices in terms of what employers can do. So let's say hypothetically, 
employee comes to the employer and has a complaint about something, whether it be harassment or they maybe they think she get overtime. What what should an employer do at that point? Like, are there certain steps they can take to either diffuse it or eliminate it from escalating? I mean, what's your thoughts around that? Well, I think uh, I'm gonna the two answers to that question. Please, what to do at that point? I'm gonna put that aside. Let's come back to it. Sure. Uh, there's an old Chinese proverb: the best time to plant a tree is today or 20 years ago. <laughs> and so, what you want to do is go ahead and plant your HR compliance tree right now before you have an issue. Let's say you got 25 to 30 employees. You may not have enough HR where you've got a full time person. But get there are all kinds of fractional services now. You can go and find you somebody who will be your HR consultant and um, you know, maybe give you 10 or 20 hours a week or five hours a week, whatever you need, but can make sure that your employee handbook is, is good, make sure that you've got documented processes and procedures, make sure that you've got good job descriptions. Job descriptions are the most important tool that, that you have in your business that nobody pays attention to. Again, this is something you want to make sure your job descriptions are good, that they're accurate, because an employment lawyer like me comes in or the Department of Labor comes in or your workers' comp insurer comes in. First thing they're going to see is, show me those job descriptions. And so you want to make sure that those job descriptions are accurate and that they reflect the essential functions of those jobs. And then you really want to inculcate a culture of uh, whatever your culture is in your in your business that or the, the culture that you want to have so that you have something to to benchmark people against as you do training as you do discipline I like to make a distinction I don't like for my clients to have disciplinary policies I want them to have training policies because I want to make it clear if if God forbid we get into court I want to make it sure that you've done everything you can do, to make this person successful. And the last thing you wanted to do was fire them. And one of the reasons why people aren't good at that is that they haven't thought it through. A lot of them really don't understand what they're hiring people to do. I'll give you a great example. I'm a lawyer. I hire an accountant. I don't know anything about accounting. And so if I just assume that the person I hire is going to be able to come in and through some accounting knowledge, you know, be a great accountant, it doesn't matter where, then I'm wrong. Because I got to train them what the best practices to be an accountant at the current law firm. I got to tell them what my expectations are. And I've got to know enough about what I'm trying to do that I can get an accountant, not with just good experience generally, but good experience with what I need them to do. And if I don't understand that job, then I can't really communicate that. And then it's just a matter of luck. If I end up getting somebody that's good, I'm probably going to go through three or four people before I really get somebody that that knows what they're doing. And then the, the last thing I'll say is you got to have a mission. And I'm a big believer in this. My mission at the Crone Law Firm is to transform the American workplace by putting people first one case at a time. And my folks can recite that. And the first thing I want to make sure is that that's what somebody wants to do. I want to make sure somebody wants to come in and and represent people in employment situations. If I've got a lawyer that, that what they really want to do is be in family law or criminal law, then they're not buying into my mission. And so if I can articulate that and then I can measure training and discipline against my mission and my core values, then all of a sudden the conversation 
about whether they're going to continue working at the Crone Law Firm is, is going to sound a whole lot different. You know, you want to make sure that you've got a diverse workplace in terms of, you know, what people look like, the accidents of, of nature. You know, are they black? Are they white? Are they from India? Are they from uh, New York? Are they what, you know, but that's not the, that's, to me, those are accidental diversity. What you want is you want a homogeneous workforce when it comes to your mission. And if you've got people that are passionate about your mission and passionate about helping you accomplish your mission, then all of a sudden you're not going to have nearly as many uh, personnel or disciplinary matters as you did before when that wasn't your yardstick. So that's kind of kind of a brief overview of, of my, my gospel on that. I tell everybody that I think the best first step in, in HR compliance and staying out of the workforce is hiring the right people and providing them whatever they need to do well. And then you're going to get to a place where you're never firing anybody. And if you've got an HR person that's working hand in glove with you, then you can make sure you've got somebody watching to make sure that your punishment or your training outcome and for person A is the same as person B, and you don't have any anomalies that that give a, a smart plaintiff's lawyer a foothold to say that you've uh, you know that you've been uh, you've been discriminatory. And then the, the last thing I'll say is you really need to cast a wide net when you're when you're uh, hiring. You know, if I just go back to my my law school and, and I hire lawyers out of my law school, you know, I'm going to get a certain kind of person. But if I go to different law, you know, if I go to different law schools, I go to HSBCs, uh, I go to women's law schools, I go to to law schools that that are known for diversity, and I get a a much larger group, then I'm going to have a diverse workforce uh, without setting out to uh, have quotas or anything else. But if I just go to my my friends and buddies, and I'm just going to end up with a bunch of white guys. And I'm, you know, that's not necessarily, not necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, in today's world, you're so much more competitive and you're going to be so much more successful if you've got all kinds of of viewpoints and, um, you know, background. Life experiences and stuff like that. Yeah, all that. And if they all, if they all are the same in the sense that they're passionate about your mission, man, you're going to have a tremendously powerful company. That's great. I love that. Hey, so now we've got this good foundation set up. Someone still comes and complains, whether it be harassment or whatever. Is there a certain, uh, what should happen at that point? What's our, what are some best practices when that happens? Well, the, the first thing you want to do is um, make sure that you take the, the complaint very seriously and make sure that you know, that the person knows that you take it seriously and you look into it. You know, there, there's so many different kinds of fact patterns, but let's just say someone comes and says, you know, I've got a coworker that's making me feel uncomfortable from a sexual standpoint. That's where you you want to do an, a, a, a down and dirty, very detailed investigation, very quick, uh, very quickly, and you want to follow it wherever it goes. And then if you, you get to the point and there's a problem, the law requires that you take the prompt, appropriate remedial measures. And so it it depends on on the nature of the conduct. But if you've got a situation where you've got this problem, then you then you can uh counsel the the offender if that's appropriate. 
You can give them a warning. You can fire them, whatever you think is appropriate. But understand you're setting a precedent for the next time. And you just really want to make sure that you talk to as many people as possible. And at the end, that you don't do anything that would um, chill anyone else's attitude towards coming forward. You want to make sure that the person who comes forward is protected. You know, not necessarily that gives them carte blanche to do anything, but you don't want them to regret having come forward. You might have to take a very uh, courageous stance. And, uh, you know, I've seen situations where the offender is a big producer and you got to do something and and people are afraid that the person is going to leave. But the conduct is serious enough. That's really where, you know, you can say you have these values. I've got these core values or whatever you call them. And people are watching. If somebody's value materially violated one of those values, they're going to look to see what do do you put money ahead of those values? You put personal relationships ahead of those values? Or do you really mean that you rule the firm, you govern the firm by those values? And that can be where the rubber meets the road. But sometimes you've, uh, you know, you find out, for example, that a, your buddy who's a supervisor is just a racist and um, treats uh, the black uh, employees terribly. And you didn't know it. And you find out about it. You may not have any, you may, it may be a tough conversation you have to have but you may have to uh, put that value of your value of integrity ahead of your personal relationship and uh, make a change. Yeah, those are some culture defining moments for sure, depending on the decisions you make. I like that. Hey, one last question I have for you. I want your opinion. So our culture society is kind of changing in the sense that people now, you know, will go onto social media, they'll talk about how much they're getting paid, they'll bring their camera into manager meetings and while the manager's terminating them, recording them. Uh it's just everything seems a lot more visible and and it gets around. I mean, it just it can go viral like overnight something someone says. Any thoughts around one where that's going and two uh just from an employer standpoint what we should be aware of and just you know, uh, maybe be more sensitive to the fact that society's this way now? Well, I think you absolutely have to take that as a given. And if you're an employer and you're having a tough conversation with somebody, you need to assume at the very least it's being audio recorded. Mm. And, you know, I tell people all the time, you ought to assume that you're being video and audio recorded all the time. You know, you shouldn't have one way you act with the cameras on and another way you act with the cameras off. But a business can control the use of cameras and, and microphones in their workplace. And, you know, in some instances, that's, that's very appropriate. Going back to the intellectual property, if you uh, are a material fulfillment center and you've got a, you know, a assembly line, you don't want people taking pictures of that. And that's perfectly acceptable. I, I'll tell, give you advice on both sides of that. When employees or executives come to me and say, I'm about to go into this meeting, uh, should I record it? I always say that your recollection of that meeting is probably more beneficial to you than the actual recording and for a lot of reasons. And not the least of which is if you secretly record that conversation, the other side's lawyer is never going to call it a recording. They're going to call it that secret recording you made, that surreptitious recording you made. I mean, they're going to make you the bad guy for for recording it. Now, what I do tell them to do is if you think for some reason that 
you want to have it recorded, then take your phone out, put it down on the table and say, I'd like to, re- I'd like to, re- to record this call, record this meeting. And if the person says, no, I don't want you recording. You say, well, that's, a, that's unfortunate. I will. So, and then turn off the recording. That's very powerful from an evidentiary standpoint. I'm just here to tell you. And if they willing, then you record it and you've got a good, you've got a good record. And uh, more than likely, the person on the other side is not going to do anything different than they would have done had uh, had you not done that. And so you're going to get a good recording of it. I just am not a big advocate of, of surreptitious recording. I think more often than not, it comes back to haunt you. And on the, the employer side, I would not get upset when that happens. And I would say, sure, you can record this because hopefully you've done your homework and what you're about to do, you could do on television in front of the whole world. And you're going to look like a much nicer guy with a recording than without it. I would make a note of that so that if, let's say, two weeks later or a month later or six months later, uh, this person makes a claim and they uh, what they say happened in that meeting is different than what actually did happen, then you can say to your lawyer, ask uh, his lawyer whatever happened to that the recording of that conversation. And that can be very powerful, uh, particularly if it contradicts everything that the person has said to their lawyer. So I wouldn't shy away from it too too much anymore, but it's certainly something that an employer can regulate on their premises. And uh, I'll say one last thing about uh, social media, no matter which side of of the V you're on, just understand that social media is is admissible. It's uh, something that's going to be used down the road. If you're an employee, don't badmouth your employer on social media. If you're an employer, don't badmouth your people on social media. It seems like that should go without saying, but some people think for some reason social media is just a different world and it do- it doesn't count. I actually had somebody, well, it's social media, it's Facebook, it doesn't count. I said, yeah, it counts. It counts a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I always love to wrap up with uh, this final question. Is there something in your journey of life or a business, you've got a business or a life tip that you can share with us that we can possibly apply to our own lives? Well, I tell you, I think it's it's business is all about relationships and success in business is all about relationships. And when I was a younger person, I used to think that networking was kind of BS. And upon reflection, I think the reason I thought that is a lot of the people I saw networking, it appeared to me, and this is, I didn't think this at the time because I didn't know enough to think it, but it was all very transactional. You know, their networking was what can this person do for me? But if you've got a true relationship with a lot of people where you've helped people, you've helped a number of people succeed, that comes back to you. and. I can't tell you how many opportunities that uh, I have taken advantage of that have come to me simply because of of the relationships in my life. And um, if I had it to do, do over again, I would I would slow down and I would I would take advantage of of more opportunities that came to me because of my relationships. So that's uh, that's the the big business advice I've been giving out lately. Yeah, that's a great one. You and I kind of have a very similar story. I think early on, I didn't realize the power in, in you know, that network and understand connecting with people on a deeper level. And I definitely, if I could rewrite my chapter in that area, I definitely would have. 
Yeah, so that's great. Hey, so your book is The Law, at, well, your website, excuse me, and I'll put this in the show notes at thinktyler.com, thelawatworkbook.com. Once again, thelawatworkbook.com. If people wanted to go anywhere else, Alan, uh, just to reach out to you or connect with you guys, is there anywhere else you'd like them to go? You can just uh, Google Alan Crone Lawyer Memphis, and you'll get more response than you want. And, uh, uh, you know, we're in Memphis, we're in St. Louis, and we're in Chicago. And uh, it's my my very slow uh, plan of world domination. <laughs> Love it. Well, you're, you're, you're getting there. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. You have a way of breaking down these topics so they don't sound lawyerly and they sound very easy, easy to digest. So we appreciate it and hope you can come back someday. So thanks, Alan. Love to do it. Thank you. And if you're, if you're ever in Memphis, uh, look me up and uh, I'll get you some barbecue. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Thank you. All right. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for The, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Electric Acid.